Hello, and welcome to a special bonus episode of Downtime with the Cranston Public Library. For the month of October, in honor of LBGTQIA Plus History Month, we will be resharing some of our episodes where we speak to guests about queer history and the queer experience. So we hope you enjoy it. On to the episode. Welcome to another episode of Downtime with the Cranston Public Library. We're a podcast for cool people who love libraries where we talk about what we've been reading, what we've been watching, and what we've been loving. I'm your host, Taylor, and the branch librarian at the Oakland Branch Library, and my pronouns are she, her. Hi, I'm Robin. I'm the branch librarian at the William Hall Library, part of the Cranston Public Library system, and my pronouns are she, her. Hi, my name is Mev, and for those of you who are curious, that's actually short for Mary Evelyn. I live in Rhode Island. My pronouns are she, her, and right now I'm uh, instigating a research project for Wanderground. Fantastic. So we will talk about Wanderground a little later in the show, which is a archive for lesbian writing and history in Rhode Island. But before that, we'll start off as we always do with what have you been reading? I just came back from a week of vacation on Thursday, so I got to do a lot of reading because my flights were delayed coming back. So I spend, I love being able to use my time wisely and read um, as I was traveling. And I got to read a couple of books that aren't out yet. And that's another one of those little perks of being a librarian is that we get access to pre-publication copies of books. So. One book that I read, which was a really interesting World War II history, and it comes out the end of June, I'm pretty sure, is called Radar Girls by Sarah Ackerman. And she sets all of her historical fiction on in the islands of Hawaii. So it's a home front, but that's very different than most of us know, unless you, especially if you've lived your whole life in the Northeast, as a few of us have. And so in this one, it's uh, world the World War II, as I've already said, and um, the bombing of Pearl Harbor happens basically on the first two pages of the book. And then women are recruited to be able to uh, listen in uh, for the radar and look at the radar to help planes land. So they have to do this specialized training for all these different women of all ages and social classes and the main character loves to take care of horses but that she had an issue the horse trainer that she worked for so she ends up getting recruited for this and so it's really interesting and I will admit there is a love story element to it which you can kind of see happening early on but I loved the history and the fact that it's happening in this part of the world that a part of our country that I know very little about. So Radar Girls by Sarah Ackerman was was one that I I did enjoy. And I finished reading a book called um, The Personal Librarian, which is a co-author. This is um, Marie Benedict, and her co-author is Victoria Christopher Murray, who has written other books herself, mainly contemporary fiction. But this is about the woman... 
Bella da Costa Green, who was the personal librarian of J.P. Morgan, and she was actually an African-American woman who was very light-skinned, and she was able to pass as white, and that led her to be able to do some really cool and amazing things. So that book, very well-researched. I've read other books by Maria Benedict, so I knew I would like this one as well. Um, so you've got the library aspect, fascinating, because she was collecting a lot of rare manuscripts and items for his library, not a public library by any stretch. Um, so the Morgan Library, which is still exists to this day, and they have great author's notes at the end, which explained how they struck up this author friendship. So I always love reading the notes at the end. How about you, Mev? Have you been reading anything lately? Well, I, I think about this as like as many books as I have surrounding me in my house. You would think I'd be a greater reader than I am, but I tend to be a sporadic reader. I I mostly read nonfiction, uh, primarily because when I do read fiction, I get so lost I can't function in the day-to-day because I get really involved with the characters and in the time. I just really lose myself, and sometimes I feel like I can't really do that. Although the one fiction I did read recently is a book that's called A Light on Altered Land. It's a self-published book by Becky Bohan, and it's it's a lesbian fiction novel, but it's about older lesbians, which I find myself reading a lot of these days is about aging and aging as a lesbian. Um, but this book is is well-written, and it covers a lot of interesting topics that lesbian communities might be thinking about, but general com- any community, really. She talks about using medical marijuana. There's a whole section on that. She talks about using, about aging and what, how do you prepare for dying, basically? How do you deal with the death of a partner who you've been with for a long time? And how do you think about the dying process? What gives you comfort in that? Uh, she talks about a new relationship as an older lesbian. She's finding herself intrigued now with someone else. And how do you build that relationship? She talks about race, class comes up, gender and sexuality issues come up. So I didn't feel preached at at all. It felt like these were all really contemporary, hard issues, but she handled them in such a conversational, natural way, like you might in your day-to-day life that you didn't, I didn't feel preached at at all. Um, But I found it to be a really, a really fascinating book to think about. Um, But then the other kinds of books I've been reading are things related to the projects I'm doing. So I, I am not a librarian, but I've been a bookseller for many, many, many years in the book in independent book industry for a long time. And so I find I feel like I'm a frustrated librarian. Like I know a lot about <laughs> library stuff because of jobs that I've had in the past. But for my project now, I'm reading a book that's called Archives for the Layperson. So it's about how to do collections and things like that. So a nice. guide to managing cultural collections. So I've been finding myself kind of diving into that a little bit. Um, and I've also, like I said, I'm working on a project with another organization that I do volunteer work for, um, a book we're putting together on confronting ageism in the lesbian community. And so I find myself reading a lot of journal articles and memoir pieces and so on. And one of the books I have found interesting recently is a book that's called No Time to Spare by Ursula Le Guin. And mm. it's a bunch of short essays that she's written. And it's about thinking about what really matters. And so it's like, you know how people say, well, I'll do that in my spare time. And she's like, I have no time to spare in these waning years of my life. So 
I find I find it sort of it's she's humorous. I mean, some of the things are just downright funny. You know, I find myself chuckling as I'm going through it. Um, so those are some of the things that I've been um, paying attention to these days. <clears throat> it sounds really interesting. I personally, as I'm in my mid fifties, I've tried to read more books that have characters who are closer to my own age because it's just more interesting to me. Mm. And uh, I hear you about getting really caught up. And that's why reading while I was on vacation and stuck in an airport was perfect. As long as I paid attention and didn't miss my flight, I was fine. And yeah, I got I got a lot of reading in. I finished two books that I had started and completed two others. So. Wow. Yeah, you did have a real reading vacation, which sounds great to me. I'd love, <laughs> I'd love a vacation where I get some reading done. And Robin, are you the type of person who also like reads on the plane or? Oh, yeah, of course. Although I did watch something on the plane, Let Them All Talk. And it came out in December of 2020. It had Candace Bergen, Meryl Streep, and Diane Wiest. And it's a famous author who goes on a cruise trip with two friends and a nephew in an effort to find fun and happiness when she comes to terms with her troubled past is the description, which does pretty much sum it up. But I like the fact that these were older actresses playing their own age. Well, that kind of brings us into uh, talking about what we've been watching lately. So I don't know if you have anything else that you watched while you were on your vacation. I know you were with family, so you probably were spending time doing more exciting things than watching things. Oh, well, I watched Raya and the Last Dragon on Disney Plus with one of my granddaughters. So I'm always I'm a sucker for a Disney Pixar, whoever that was, type of film. <laughs> Strong female character saving. Well, I don't want to give it away. Don't want to spoil it for anybody. But <laughs> Raya, she's she's got it going on. So I always like that. Me too. I've, I haven't gotten a chance to watch it. Um, but I loved Moana, so like I'm interested to see another Disney take on like a strong female lead who's well, Moana was a princess in the sense that she was like the daughter of the leader. I had a child at the desk tell me yesterday that she's technically not a princess, but I was like, Okay. <laughs> These are the types well, of things that happen when you work in a public library man. <laughs> That you got fooled on like Disney characters and, you know, dinosaurs from small children or Lego creating. Like I've been building with Lego since before you were even a, a blink in anyone's eye, little child. <laughs> I once took a child. This was many, many years ago, maybe 30, 40 years ago. And I took a four year old to a museum in New Haven, the name of which totally escapes me at the moment. But one of the things they did have in it was a lot of dinosaur bones in it. And so I said, we were going to, I can't remember the name of the museum. This would be a lot. The Peabody. Uh, well, anyway, so we went Peabody to the museum. museum Which one? The Peabody Museum. Peabody, that was it. That's totally yeah. it. It makes I the story. I needed to know the name of the museum, else it wouldn't make any sense, this story. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so we went to the museum. We're looking around. She's looking at the dinosaurs. all four years old. She goes, Meth. I don't know why they called it the Peabody Museum. I did not see any Peabody bones. They should call it the Dinosaur Museum. <laughs> I said, thank you very much. <laughs> Whatever the heck a Peabody bone looks like, we didn't see any. <clears throat> I love it. From the mouths of babes, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, so, uh, Mev, have you been watching anything interesting 
Well, uh, not really. Um, <laughs> we, uh, I mean, I was watching the Equalizer, the TV show for a little while, just because I like uh, the characters in it, but it's too scary for me. I can't watch that kind of stuff. It stays with me for days. And so I eventually have to move away from it. But you know, it's that time of year when I'm actually really watching the WNBA women's basketball a whole lot. That's pretty much my go-to. And then kind of the Red Sox, because I don't really watch TV. I sort of zone out to it and fall asleep. So, uh, you know, I am, my, my partner enjoys a lot of Hallmark shows. And so I end up kind of falling asleep to Hallmark a lot, but you know, very, so we get on a binge and we'll watch the whole series of something, the Good Witch or something like that, which I, you know, I find that kind of delightful, the Good Witch. It's pretty, you know, it's got some story to it, but it's it's really mindless, you know, and so that's that's pretty much what I need TV for. And, you know, I haven't gone to a movie theater, obviously, for two years now. So um, and I find it hard to concentrate on movies on TV for some reason. I don't know why. So it, it, our house, we have very different tastes, so we don't usually land on the same thing. And WNBA basketball is really always a safe bet <laughs> or the Red Sox, one or the other. And the Olympics will be coming up soon, so if we get yeah. if they actually happen, we'll be watching whatever we can see of the Olympics when they come on, that kind of stuff. So that's pretty much it. And then I watch the Garden Grow. That's the way I do this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now staying outside a lot, staying away from the screens is definitely. I, I spend a lot of time on Zoom with this other organization I do work with, and so I'm I'm zooming pretty constantly. So I feel like that's enough of my screen time. Definitely. How about you, Taylor? Have you seen anything recently that's... Um, so right now, really the main thing that we've been watching at my house is keeping up with all the new releases on Disney+. Plus. So Loki comes out on Wednesdays, and we'll watch it on Thursdays because Wednesday night we play Gloomhaven, and then Bad Batch comes out on Friday. We've been watching that on Saturday, um, and I've been enjoying both of them. I am I am cautiously optimistic Loki after two episodes I enjoyed the first two episodes and I am hoping that it stays on that there are only six episodes uh so but I'm hoping it stays on this interesting trajectory what I already thought was gonna happen like hasn't happened I was like oh I I think the twist is gonna be this and it's like already revealed in the second episode it's like no you were mistaken so I have no idea what's gonna happen but I'm on board I'm here for it um and Bad Batch is fun you know, the four clone dads and their clone child uh, have hijinks. And so that's always a good time. <laughs> you mentioned Disney, and that reminded me that we did recently watch Hamilton again, which I enjoy greatly. And it was the only reason why we got Disney was so that we could watch Hamilton. And so I don't know what else we're going to watch on Disney except Hamilton again, probably. But we don't do a lot of subscribing to a lot of extra stuff because, you know, there's there's many more things that are pennies could go to so it's fun to re-watch a film that you maybe watched as a kid i've done that a few times and maybe your partner hasn't seen one that you've seen yeah. so i had to show the movie treasure island my spouse because he had never seen it old old one and because there's a lot you know the old the the really old stuff is on there as well as some of the newer stuff and i i think some of the things um there's a, a good series with jeff goldblum on there that's sort of like a what's the story behind a certain thing like he delves into coffee or sneakers or something mm. and it's short it's like a half hour I like shows like that that I can put on while I'm just 
uh, at lunch hour or something like that. So. Yeah, we watch. We actually watch Top Chef a lot too, which is not a Disney. Oh, nice. Top Chef. That's fun. You know, we get, but I always get frustrated because I can't smell or taste what's going on. So I'm like <laughs> using my imagination and hyper overdrive trying to figure out. And sometimes they make stuff and I'm like, okay, that really, I can tell just by looking at it that that's a mistake. <laughs> and I'm not a big chef, but I know enough about cooking to know some things just don't make any sense. But that's funny. I'll go exploring Disney a little more. There might be some there to get lost in. And that's only an hour or two of investment of time. Yeah. And like I'm I'm somewhat of a slow reader, so a novel is more of a time commitment for me. <laughs> I hear you. I mean I hadn't read an entire novel in a while until I was like buckling down on my trip and not distracted by stuff and saying I gotta read some stuff. And we'll return to the show after a quick break. Cranston Public Library is pleased to bring poetry to our patrons all without leaving the comfort of home. No internet, computer, or smartphone required. A recorded poem read by a CPL staff member will be available every Tuesday afternoon. To listen, call 401-900-1090 and be sure to check back weekly to hear what's new. For more information about this service, please visit cranstonlibrary.org slash on the line. Udemy is an online learning platform for adults who want to improve work-related skills or further develop a personal interest. Users can search through more than 4,000 continuously updated on-demand video courses across 75 categories, including business, technology, design, and more. All courses are taught by world-class instructors and offer a tailor-made learning experience for those who want to learn new technologies and skills to stay competitive in the changing workforce. All you need to get started is your library card and a Google or Microsoft account. You can find more information about how to sign up for Udemy at cranstonlibrary.org by clicking the link that says online resources you can use now. But anyway, on to the topic at hand. You've done <laughs> doing a lot of research from what I've read about you and about your project. I have seen a few things come my way. Yes, I sent it to Ocean State Libraries and I sent it to the uh, managers of the different branches and individuals who I thought might be possibly interested, as well as lesbians in the community and the various LGBTQ organizations and whoever I could think of that would. I, I like to cast a very broad net um, mm -hmm. for whenever I'm doing this kind of work. So the full project right now uh for the grant, which I received from the uh, Rhode Island Council for the Humanities, I received a one-year research grant from them to lay the foundation for this work. And the full project is right now is called Archiving Lesbian Legacies, Words, and Creativity in Rhode Island. Uh, so it's a one-year grant um, for me to be able to talk to lesbians in Rhode Island about whether or not it would be um, enjoyable or um, necessary or if people are even interested in having an archive in Rhode Island that features all kinds of different lesbian cultural materials. Um, for me, I, as I alluded to before, I was in the book industry for 20, 30 years. I started off as a bookseller at Walden Books and then <laughs> moved on to 
independent um, distribution for a while. I've worked for a lesbian publisher. I worked in a feminist lesbian bookstore for 10 years. I was a cooperative owner of a bookstore for a number of years. I was a reviewer, a book editor. I've done, I, I've touched a lot of different aspects of the book industry, including not as a librarian, but I hired by women's presses to promote their books to librarians. And so I spent four, five, six years um, rubbing shoulders with librarians at various conventions and whatnot to promote feminist lesbian books to librarians. So as a result of that, and because of my own interest, um, starting in 1978-79, which is when I, in 1980, which was when I really started working in bookstores, I have asked quite the collection of <laughs> books over time. Um, and part of me knew that some of these books were, like there's a lot of feminist lesbian presses from the 1970s, 80s um, that, you know, had short runs. They did, you know, they published 20, 30 books and then went out of business, you know, for whatever mm -hmm. reason. So, so there's a number of presses that are like that, of which I've tried to collect as many of their books as I've, that I've, and, and then there's, you know, people who do one-off books or a few books or they've done pamphlets or, and then there's also journals like Common Lives, Lesbian Lives or Sinister Wisdom, a number of those kinds of things. So, so basically over the years, either because I was a reviewer or because I had access through all the work I was doing, I have developed this rather large collection of lesbian publications, journals, books, uh, whatnot, um, and then I was doing radio for about 10 years. So I also have a lot of CDs and albums and cassette tapes as well. So, uh, and as I've gotten older, I'm like, you know, they're treasures to me. They are about my coming out. They are about how I learned about lesbian life, how I learned about other lesbians, how I've learned about, um, various social issues, not only just about being a lesbian, but being a feminist, being an anti-racist, work doing anti-oppression work, um, being aware of different class issues. Immigration issues, all of these things are all wrapped up for me in, in a big complex ball of wonder. Um, and so as I've grown older, I'm like, okay, I have a whole house full of books. And so what do I do with them? So I actually started cataloging them, which was I found a book program um, where I can, that um, is an online for anybody who wants to know how to collect their books in a way that makes sense. The program I'm using is called Collectors. Um, hmm. Book Connect, I think it's also called Book Connect. Um, if you, anyway, I, I, because of that, I've been able to not only catalog my books, but also link them on my, on my Wanderground website. So you can actually go to my website and see the numbers of titles that I have, which at this point is close to 2,000, and I'm not done cataloging yet. I probably have another thousand at least to go of the books that I've collected over time. Um, wow. So, so the question has become, what do I do with this? And how do I get it out of my house? And how do I keep it? Because I know that if something were to happen to me, somebody come in here and say, what is all this? And then they fill up a dumpster and that would be that. And that's definitely not what I want to have happen. Yeah. I've also been thinking about, well, I could give it to the public library, but I know too much about public libraries to know that if something doesn't circulate, it gets taken out of the collection because Public libraries only have so much room. And because I know that these things probably would not circulate at any high rate, um, <clears throat> they would be doomed to book tables in front of the library for sale for a nickel kind of thing. And somebody else like me who loves this stuff would come along and find them. But <laughs> maybe not. Um, but then I also have been thinking, I could send them to 
um, like the Lesbian History Archives in New York City, but they probably have everything I have, so there's no point in sending it to them. And they're busting at the seams now anyway. I don't know what they would take. And then I thought, well, I could send it to another archive like at Brown or at Sophia Smith up in Amherst or wherever they are, or some other university library. There are more and more LGBTQ special collections happening across the country in various places. They could go there, but I want them accessible to the community. If they're in a university collection, that's really great for people who are doing academic research, but for the everyday lesbian gay person who wants to read something and can't find it in the library, you know, they're not necessarily going to go trucking over to Brown either. There's nothing more fun than walking into a room and seeing the books in front of you rather than having to order it and wait for it and see if it, you know, I mean, that there's something, so, so there's something about being able to like walk in the room and touch it and see it and leaf through it and decide whether or not it's anything you want to spend time on or not. I don't know. It's just the old fashioned bookseller in me, I think, you know, <laughs> that has, <laughs> that likes it in my hands kind of stuff. But so back to the research, the, the grant actually was for me to find out would any lesbians or anybody else in Rhode Island be interested in seeing this collection or any collection of lesbian books in one place? Like, is there a reason or a need or a want to have a place where this collection could be easily seen and accessible to the larger Rhode Island community. But because it's the Rhode Island Council of the Humanities, I also had to make it specific to Rhode Island. I have done that is, is to try to find out, because a lot of the feminist, lesbian, independent publishing happened between like late 1970s or so to about 2000. It's still happening, but the whole thing, the cultural thing about the bookstores and the publishers and the journals... Really, its heyday was really like these to about 2000, um, when a lot, when it was really happening a lot. Um, and that's a lot of what is in my collection. But I didn't live in Rhode Island during those years. And so I don't know what was happening in Rhode Island in terms of any kind of lesbian newsletter or because I lived in New Haven for a number of years. We had our own lesbian newsletter that went out to the community every month. Does that exist here in Rhode Island? I don't know. That's what I'm trying find out. Okay. Options is the best thing that I've heard about. It's the only thing I've really heard about. Um, that's what everybody tells me. But, you know, so I'm trying to find lesbians because the other thing is like, okay, we're an aging group. If I don't find this out now, I'm not going to find out, you know, and I've already been told tales of like, well, she had this great thing, but she's died. But, you know, I've heard some stories like that already in, in the research I've been doing. But trying to find out, are there any lesbians who published books about lesbian life in other places? Like, who in Rhode Island has done that? Because I don't specifically know that because I wasn't here. Yeah. And so that's kind of what the research is about, is to find out, A, is anybody interested in Rhode Island collections or Rhode Island things that lesbians in Rhode Island have written or published or gathered or any of those kinds of things to find out what's here, where it is, who has it, how can I get it, you know, those kinds of things. Then the other part of it is, is, is there a place for a space? What kind of, what, is there a need or a want or a desire? Because there's no putting, point putting it together. So, you know, and I've learned things like the Providence Public Library now is collecting LGBTQ. They've started a special collections now. So they're looking for, you know, newsletters and organizational papers and those kinds of things relevant to the LGBT community in Rhode, specifically in Rhode Island. Oh, that's great. I didn't, I didn't realize that. 
Yeah, I know. And they've just launched. I mean, they, they sort of started working on this about the same time I started thinking about how to do this. And so um, nice. as I've, I've known about sort of known about it in the back of my head for about a year, but I think they just recently launched it publicly in like the last month or two, maybe. Um, I've also, like I said, I mentioned to the, been talking to the Hay Library at Brown University, and they're very interested. They have a lot of the G, but they don't have a lot of the L <laughs> part of the, <laughs> so, and they're more interested in maybe the broader stuff that I have, not only just the specifically Rhode Island stuff, which I have none, um, but but they're, they're interested in a broader part of my collection. Um, so that's why I've been kind of speaking with them and then just trying to figure out what I'm going to do with it. So part of the project is to gather all this information. I'm going to be also speaking with the folks at, at the New York um, History Archives, the Lesbian Archives in New York. Um, so there's some, a couple of other lesbian history archives. I'll be talking with the June, Jane Mazur out in, June Mazur out in um, San Francisco or Los Angeles. There's some around the country, maybe the Sophia Smith collection, trying to find out how do they make their decisions? Like what what is collectible? What is worth keeping? And I, for my own purposes, like I said, my collection is mostly books and journals and some newspapers and those kinds of things. Um, whether or not I'm going to branch into buttons and CDs and posters and letters and T-shirts and all those kinds of things, that's to be determined. You know, part of it is I, I'm a, I'm a person who does a lot of these projects. I started off, I think about it, but then I try to get other lesbians involved in this case. And then I sort of don't make all the decisions myself. I really try to make it a community effort. So based on um, what the community wants, based on other partners who might be working on it with me, what's important to them, what are their priorities, what are, you know, trying to come to some kind of collaborative consensus about what it could involve. So if somebody really gets chills and thrills about collecting art or posters, then have at it. That's not what I know anything about, but if somebody else knows something about that and has an idea about how to collect it, how to keep it, how to share it, then yes, by all means, let's do that. Right now, I'm also really focusing on doing a survey. And you can go to my website, which is wanderground.org, and um, answer a whole bunch of questions. Like, what do you like to read? What what lesbian book impacted your coming out as a lesbian? Do you think it's important to have a lesbian archive in Rhode Island? What do you know? What have you collected? Do you know anybody who's collected anything? What materials in Rhode Island do you know about? And share that with me so that, you know, so that's that's a lot of what's in the survey. It takes about 10 or 15 minutes to do. I saw that you're having, you're doing a focus group next week, Mev. Yes. Is that the first run on that's, that or? Yeah, that's the first, that is the first focus group. Um, I figure some folks don't like surveys <laughs> or they have more to say than what the survey might allow them to say. The focus group is going to be on Zoom because we're still on that tentative. I don't know if I want to be in the world or see people or, you know, <laughs> wear a mask or not wear a mask. I mean, we're still in that tentative phase. So the first one is by Zoom. And so folks who have mostly um, folks who have answered the survey have indicated whether they want to participate. There will be other Zooms in the future. So if folks are listening and they're like, I really want to do that. Um, just go to the website or contact me info at wanderground.org um, if you're interested in doing that. Um, and your survey is going to be open through November. That's right. It's Because it, this grant started in April, goes to the end of March of next year. Okay. So the survey is open, and then that until November, the survey is open. That will give me time to, like, look at the results and sort of come up with a summary of all the things that I have found and chat the conversations I've been having with people, either one-on-one. -on -one. I've done a lot of one-on-one -on -one interviews so far. 
with lesbians who have been recommended to me who might know stuff. And so I've been doing that because I know that in conversation, people are like, oh, yeah, I remember. Oh, that reminds me. Oh, I should have told you this. Or, oh, yeah. So I know there's a lot of, you know, jumping off that people do. So I'm hoping that that happens in the focus groups. Um, if an organization um, or a small group, like if you have a cluster of friends and you just do it among yourselves and have a conversation with me among yourselves, I'm open to doing that. Um, there's a different way of having a conversation circle just to sort of among friends. If you're, I know that there's still a lot of lesbians who aren't out or don't want to really be known publicly. And so I'm happy to keep this. The survey is completely anonymous. You don't have to tell me who you are. Um, if you want to and get on the mailing list, that's totally fine too. Or if you don't want to answer the survey, but you want to get on the mailing list, you can do that from the website as well. Uh, so there's a lot of entry points for this, and I'll just keep going at it for the whole year. And then in the spring, probably February, March, the um, council requires that we do some kind of public-facing event to show what I what I found out. And so um, that's I've got some ideas that that might take on the uh, uh, display, you know, like display cases in libraries. I might be coming back to you. Can I put up a display case in the Warwick Library with some of this cool stuff I have found? Or um, some kind of event or a podcast or a Zoom or, you know, I'm still trying to figure out what, what it looks like. And that will kind of depend on where the research takes me um, in terms of, of how that gets presented. Uh, so so that that's to be determined, but that will definitely happen after the first of next year in terms of wrapping up the project and saying, okay, this is what I found. This is what I learned. Um, these are the next steps because I'm not going to do this and then just drop it. It's There's going to be next steps. And so you get anybody who wants to help out or, be part of the project or just stay on the mailing list and keep informed. Um, all of those things are possibilities and opportunities. It is interesting that the archive that Providence Public is doing is an LGBTQ plus community archive. Right, right. Or is specific for lesbians. Right, exactly. So I can see why you would want to give this focus and, you know, possibly be part of a larger group in the future, but it is nice to have have somebody who that's their passion. Yeah. And I would definitely say that's, you know, I mean, because there's a lot of folks, like you say, doing a lot of the rest of that alphabet, if you will. Um, uh, there is a book out that I, a couple of years old at this point, um, it's by Bonnie Morris, and it's called The Disappearing L. Oh. The subtitle is Erasure of Lesbian Spaces and Culture. Uh, and so, I mean, I'm passionate about the L because I'm a lesbian and that's what I care about and that's what I know about. And I learned long ago not to talk about things I don't know about because, you know, <laughs> but also it's it's where my passion is. Um, and that's not to say that I disregard other. I mean, I, you know, it's the LGBTQ plus community and all of that is important and I embrace all of that. But I'm an L, so <laughs> I'm hanging, and it's sort of like if I can't expect somebody else to hold on to my culture if I can't hold on to my culture. And in the lesbian community, I say communities because there's a lot of different lesbians from different backgrounds with different experiences. There's more than one culture. We we say lesbian culture, but it's really cultures. Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot of experiences and stories and, you know, conflicts and contradictions and there's a lot of variety in terms of how we perceive ourselves as lesbians or queer or butch femme or sports dyke or you know uh, whatever that variety is you know and it's, it's based on race and language and age i mean i think there's a lot of generational differences 
um, mm-hmm. that happens among lesbians in the community. There's um, certainly even regions of the country, for crying out loud, even areas of Rhode Island. <laughs> That's the thing about really trying to come up with a diverse collection of lesbian writings is that there is, you know, some might say, oh, that's really academic, but then you look at other things that are, you know, the romance novels or the sports dykes or the festival culture. I mean, there's a lot of different things in the lesbian communities um, that is represented by our publications. And, you know, the reality is that the reason why there is a rich vibrancy among lesbian writing is because we weren't being published. The only reason it exists is because we did it. We did it ourselves. We created the publishing companies. We created the printing presses. We, our books were not going to be printed by your basic printers. There were so, I, I worked for a publisher one time who was trying to republish a book called Lesbian Sex and the printer would not print it. We had to find a different printer. That's where all some of this lesbian literature is not, it's not only cool that it is there, but that it took a lot of blood, sweat and tears. It was a labor of love, actually, in order to get a lot of these things in lesbians' hands. So, all right, so I'm a writer. What do I do with my lesbian writing? I try to find a publisher. I can't find a publisher. So I print it myself on the mimeograph machine or wherever the heck. I find a print. Oh, look, a lesbian printer. Okay, they're willing to print it. Oh, so now it's a real book. Now, how am I going to get this book into lesbians' hands? Oh, well, guess what? We had to start our own bookstores. So we started our own lesbian feminist bookstores so that we could sell the writings of the lesbians who are writing our fiction, our poetry, our essays, our academic whatevers, you know. So that's that time period between late 70s to 2000. And the books, they're still like when I was in in the heyday, really, which was when I was really active, there were maybe 150 feminist lesbian bookstores across the USA. Now there's about 10. Mm. on two hands how many are left um and that and it was not only gay not only feminist lesbian but there were gay bookstores independent bookstores leftist bookstores socialist bookstores all of these things were a really vibrant community um gay bookstores too you know that also carried lesbian literature a lot of lesbian bookstores didn't carry a cross-section of gay literature but the journal you know the newspapers the journals all those things had a place because we made the bookstores they weren't going into Walden Books or Barnes & Noble or any of those other places for the most part, you know. And so people are like, oh, now it's all digital. You can get it from Amazon. You can get it here. You can get it there. But you know what's lost? Community. Yeah. Let's had a place to go. Gay people had a place to but, go. We but, had man, a place where we talk. Do you think that there are more books that reflect your community out in the world now that are easy to access for people? or I... I know of them because I know of who some of the publishers are. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you could go on Amazon and Google lesbian fiction and come up with a bunch of stuff, but it's it's different than when we were in the bookstores and we were handing each other the books and saying, oh, you, oh, sure. that, you know, and there's a lot of lesbians who are self-publishing now too. Okay. You know, like you can go and do a print on demand book, right? Accepted by a publisher, but you can put it out there and then sell yeah. 400 copies and, you know, there you are. But there's definitely lesbians still writing, obviously. There's still publish. I mean, there might be more mainstream publishers willing to take on more of the books than there have been in the past. Mm-hmm. I have to say, personally, I've been sort of out of the field for about 10 or 15 years. So I'm a little bit out of touch because okay. there's no lesbian bookstore in Rhode Island either, you know, and there's no bookstore in Boston. There's no books, you know, 
those yeah. cultural centers are really missing. And so I think we don't know. And a lot of the publications that would review those books don't exist anymore either. So I think it's harder to find. I think they're out there. It's just harder to find them. And so if you happen to know somebody who knows somebody, you might find it. But otherwise, you would think that there's no culture out there. There's no lesbian writing out there much anymore because it's, mm. I think it's just exponentially harder to find. And even if you go into a regular bookstore, a lot of them have taken out all the lesbian and gay sections and put it in with everything else. So if you're looking for something on lesbian, if you're looking for lesbian fiction, it's all mixed in with all that. So how do you find it mm. easily? unless you stumble across it or somebody tells you about it. You know, you go into a bookstore and there isn't a lesbian gay section anymore, so you have to find it in wherever they put it, sociology or anthropology or history or science or wherever the heck it is now, you know. So that that accessibility of being able to find out more about who we are or who's like us or what I can learn from this, it's just harder. It's, it, it's harder to do. Well, that's why pride is so, you know, at least you can rub shoulders with everybody for a day. <laughs> you know, but after yeah, that, yeah. you know, <laughs> you know, maybe a month you can go to different events or different movies or this or that. But but those that that center of exchange is really missing from our life right now. At least I know it's missing from my life, you know. So it was hard coming out when I came out because there was so much backlash and you had to stay closeted for fear of losing your housing, your job, your friends, your family, all of those things as true anymore, but it's also harder to connect into a community, at least because we had to, we found each other. Um, and so we were able to support each other in different kinds of ways. And that may or may not, you know, I think it does still happen to some extent, but now that I'm older, organization that focuses on old lesbians, because those are my people right now. You know, it's like, and, and we have things to talk about in our generation and we understand each other. And so we have that, that home base, if you will. So I think online spaces have really helped with that from, from what I'm seeing online of other people, because that's the space I'm in. You know, people are finding their communities online and even in person. I, you know, I have friends of mine who, one time I was talking to them and they were like, I don't think I'm friends with any straight people. <laughs> like, I just had to laugh. So I think we're still finding each other. I, I think, think the kids know, are okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, again, it's a generational thing. Like, I, more and more people find more and more things that they want online, whether or not it's safe, whether or not it's true, whether or not it's supportive. I mean, I'm sorry, I, I do a lot of stuff online, but it, it still makes me nervous. And it doesn't feel like you can't hug someone online. I mean, it is virtual hug, blah, 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 you know, little emojis, you know. But also, I think that is okay if you have access to that digital space. You know, if you have a phone or a computer or a decent connection, you know, you talk to folks in rural spaces, they don't have the kind of internet access that you might have, you know, but I think even in person to person spaces, that's true. If you don't have the transportation to get someplace. I can definitely reassure you. I've been working in public libraries here in Rhode Island for 20 years, and we still have young people come up to us and ask in a roundabout way. They want books with gay and lesbian characters, queer and questioning characters, and we've always bought them and we've always had them on our shelves. Um, 
And so we do still have this human interaction. I know it's not the same as a specialized bookstore and I'm not trying it, but I just want you to know that young people will find us, older folks, they'll ask us questions. I mean, worked in a bookstore, you know, people will come up to a librarian and ask any sorts of personal questions and we are ready to answer them in terms of finding library materials. So we are still here and I and we always reassure like when we do school group tours, we always tell the kids, you know, whatever you ask us, it's confidential. We can't tell anyone else what you ask us. That's one of the things that we as librarians pride ourselves on. Yeah, that that's really important. Pat on the back. Yeah, no, and I I would say I mean when when I was actually selling books to librarians, you know, there was the feminist task force and there was the social responsibilities roundtable and there was the gay task force and the librarians and you know a lot of the librarians were doing some really good, important and supportive work. Applaud you all for that, definitely. I mean it, and you know, I mean it still takes courage for somebody to come up and in that roundabout way ask. You know, my friend is kind of wondering, you know, if you have anything. Sure. You know, so many people who would not go into a feminist lesbian bookstore because as soon as they walked through the door, they knew that somebody would see them. You know, I mean, that's why all our bars were in dark, dismal, unlit parking lots where you had to like knock four times and, you know, get seen. And that, you know the secret code. You know, all of that, the handshake or whatever it was that you needed to know to get into spaces like that. But I mean, I, I think the librarians have actually been lifesavers for many, you know, on, on a lot of different topics. Um, so I actually do think that many libraries, um, you know, do that important work and, and do need to be supported and applauded for just that reason. Um, you know, so we're doing our best, just like you. Well, and with limited funding, you know, it's, it's, I mean, you know, like you couldn't get all the books that all out, that's all out there because you can't afford them, you know, no. and, you know, that was the thing in the bookstore too. We wanted to have everything, but we couldn't. And but we do our best to purchase materials that our patrons ask for, yeah. if at all possible. Um, at the Cranston Public Library, where we work, we'll do our best to see whether we can get that into our budget. Yeah. So yeah. We're, we're always happy to, to try. So if anyway, if folks are wondering about Wanderground, um, my website is wanderground.org and I encourage lesbians in Rhode Island, or if you know lesbians who don't live in Rhode Island anymore, but who used to, um, if they've moved to Chicago or Nebraska or wherever they're living now, um, I welcome their responses as well. It is available online and you can go to the website and find all that information about how to reach me and how to do the survey and um, all of those kinds of things. And if folks are interested in the um, Zoom, the focus groups, I am doing them by Zoom right now. And you need to pre-register so that I have a sense of how many are going to be coming. Great. And links to your site and the survey, of how, however many links we can fit. We got a character limit, but we'll throw as many as we can fit in the show notes. So we like to end the show with a segment I call The Last Chapter, where we talk about a library or bookish related question. Um, oh. So this week, I thought I would ask you both, how do you organize your shelves at home? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, Alphabetical order by author. Yeah, I, 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 well, everything is upside down now because I've been cataloging everything. But I, I do try to group by topic. It makes it a little easier for me so that Anything that's like African-American studies or something like that, I put together. All the poetry is together. All the fiction is together, alphabetical by author. 
Um, it's the nonfiction stuff that I have a harder time. Like I try to keep the biographies together and I try to keep the history books together and the theory books and the, you know, the research books. So, so um, and sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't, um, you know, sometimes that's, particular size book doesn't fit on that particular shelf so i have to like be creative about where it goes it lays across the top or i have one size one shelf of oversized books or um i had a friend one time do everything by color which was like you know that's not going to happen <laughs> but then i forget what my classification system is that i have to start all over again which is kind of where i am right now so like i don't know where most of my stuff is because i've been moving around it and sadly because i have so many books too many stuff lives in boxes. And so I've been really trying to organize the boxes so that at least like items are in one box rather than scattered around a bunch of different boxes. So it's a challenge. We know the feeling. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm like Robin. I do split nonfiction and fiction, but I just do both of those alphabetically by author because I don't feel throwing Dewey into my nonfiction at home. Um, but yeah, the librarian in me can't really bring myself to do anything other than that. Um, but I mean, it works and it makes sense to me. So that that is the one nice thing about this cataloging program that I've been using is that it's pulling from some database somewhere. I don't exactly know where, but it there is a field that says what the LC number is and what the Dewey number is. I don't have to make it up, which is fine because well, I don't know how to do that stuff. But, you know, but then I get to classify it by all the subjects that I think are relevant. I go to the Auburn branch and I've noticed that they've started taking stuff apart and putting it like, here's all the sociology books. And here's all the she travel books. It, yeah, she does it a little bit differently in terms of like more of a bookstore model. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. It, it, it kind of confuses me a little bit. <laughs> Uh, Karen will help you if you need it. She's I'm sure she will. All the library, I find that all the librarians there in the Auburn branch, I love the Auburn branch. They're so helpful and they'll get anything for me. And, you know, they're, I, I really kudos to the Auburn branch. That's great. Well, I mean, Dave can even just like clip that out, send that to Auburn. <laughs> send your thanks right to them. Thank you both for joining me for this wonderful conversation. Um, thank you everyone for listening. If you'd like to reach out to us here at Downtime, you can do that by emailing us at downtime at cranstonlibrary.org. You also can reach out to us via social media now with our hashtag DowntimeCPL. So if you want to talk about Downtime on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, use that hashtag. And if you're feeling generous, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, It helps people find the show. And once again, thank you for listening. And this has been another episode of Downtime. Downtime is a project of the Cranston Public Library and is produced by Zach Berger, Martha Boxenbaum, Robin Nizio, and me, Taylor Cardillo. Audio engineering by Dave Bartos. Our theme music is Day Trips by Ketza. And our ad music is Happy Ukulele by Scott Holmes. Links to the books and movies discussed can be found in the show notes. Remember to rate and review Downtime on Apple Podcast. Connect with the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram with the hashtag DowntimeCPL. And if there's something you'd like to hear on the show, send an email to downtime at cranstonlibrary.org. Join us next week for more Downtime. Nice work once again, Taylor. (laughs) Thank you. That was fun.